Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alvin Tejo. I'm Grima Talwar-Kapoor. And I'm Sam Andrew. Today on the pod, the vaccine floodgates are opening in Ontario, with over 800,000 vaccines coming in per week from basically now on. Individuals aged 18 plus eligible to book on the provincial portal as of today in hot zones. Individuals aged 30 plus able to book province-wide the week of May 17th. And all adults basically able to book the week of May 24th. Hope appears to be in sight. Of course, we will talk about Doug Ford's plan for, air quotes please, paid sick days, a move that seems to have been read as capitulation on the Ford government, but without any of the benefits of an actually good plan. And I thought it might be good for a bit of a, I don't know, maybe a medium dive this week to talk about the long-term care report commission that came out last week, which had some super important things to say about the long-term care situation and why it was so bad and what we can do about it in the future. But holy hell, gang, what a week. How's everyone doing? Anyone interact with the vaccine system yet? Alvin, you were saying before the pod, you were looking at the your queue man right now. I'm watching it. I've been waiting for a couple of hours already. It says I'm the 896,038th person to be in the queue. And there are there there were all about, about 300,000 people ahead of me when we started. So we'll see if by the end of this pod, do I actually get to book my vaccine? I tried last week when they opened up the hotspots in Peel to say that you can just sign up online to sign up. And I signed up and nothing happened. Like it was last Tuesday and they took all my information and I just, I never even got a a form response saying, thank you for the information. We'll get back to you. So I don't know, crossing my fingers, hoping this works now that we're using the provincial portal, but it's certainly taking a long time, but at least people are trying to sign up. I guess that's a good thing. I was lucky I got my vaccine last week. I'm in a hotspot. And so we went on this, like literally you put your name and number on a post-it note and it's like the standby list at the community center in our neighborhood i live uh, in st jamestown and they called last wednesday and gave a few hours notice and uh, yeah me and my partner got the pfizer vaccine no symptoms or anything it was great bad one for pfizer yeah yeah but it was great so that was nice but yes full of inequities in and paper standby lists but hey it worked. I, I'm really hopeful that this uh, provincial rollout works because last week I was telling you guys that I was trying to book a vaccine for my sister and it took four really educated, hardworking women who are tech savvy trying to figure out Durham Public Health's portal, which was a disaster. There was just there was just no other way to talk about it. And my cousin that was trying to help got into like an argument with a local hospital, all on Twitter with the local hospital, with the mayor of Ajax, with Durham Public Health, because there's so much confusion. There's two parallel websites running. Some postal codes, you go to this website. For other postal codes, you go to another. And again, this at the back end, I know everybody's trying as hard as they possibly can, but it was an absolute... It was just a disaster. And so if you don't have the language skills or if you don't have the tech skills, I have no idea how you navigate this. And it's not like they didn't know this was going to be an issue last summer. And they only last week said, hey, yeah, we're going to put together a provincial portal and try to sort this all out for everybody. Let's instead have a disparate system that addresses needs in 100 different ways for 15 million people. That's going to work real well. 
Yeah. I got to say, I was grateful that so i live in the same hot spot as sam i booked successfully my vaccine on the provincial portal this morning i was very excited but i was grateful that toronto public health did not even try like basically they changed their website to or something to basically send you to the provincial portal like they were not trying to you can book locally through toronto public health but they were i think they expecting the flood of hundreds of thousands of people and they sent people to the provincial portal which i think we've heard some mixed experiences on but at least for me at eight clock this morning, I was number 500,000 in line. So that number only got bigger after I joined. And I just I was like watching that little man walk across the screen, or a little person. And I feel like we a need a name for that like that. By the end of the pandemic, that little person is going to have a name. uh, And it's going to be funny. Twitter is going to be on that, I think, but it didn't crash. And uh, I was grateful for that. Let's talk about some of the uh, news because uh, I think the provincial portal opening in the way that it did was the result of the expected supply of Pfizer primarily anticipating to rise to almost 800,000 per week. So that is 90% of the vaccine coming into Ontario is going to be Pfizer. Uh, it is increasing to 940,000 per week by the end of May. And the province announced a couple of sort of key changes. They're going to be diverting 50% of all of that new vaccine to the hotspots. It used to be just 25% for the hotspots, 75% for the whole province. Now it's 50-50, at least for the month of May. Everyone and 18 plus eligible to book, of course. And But I think lost in some of just the excitement about the age groups finally having some movement was they've added province-wide eligibility for workers in the sort of group one cannot work from home category, which include warehouse, farm workers, childcare, education workers, educators, like your non-teachers who are working the education system. Of course, as mentioned, the rest of the province is basically coming into scope over the next two, three weeks. If you read the province's press release, you really get the sense that it has this tone of like, finally, we have the vaccines that we need. So finally, we're able to do this stuff. Actually, in the first paragraph, there's after weeks of unstable supply, we're finally moving to the next phase of this. This feels like it's going to be a moment. It's many people that I know are now getting vaccines and many more will in the coming weeks, providing these systems hold to some degree. It's going to have a sizable impact on our politics, our public life, just the way we experience the place. So I wonder if we can just start high level and opine on the floodgates are opening. What effect is this going to have on our politics? And what do we think about the policy itself? Obviously, it's great news. I I remain, maybe just to pick up on one thing you said, a bit confused at how many times it's changed course over the past, it's not even months, right? really the month. I went back on April 13th, which is two and a half weeks ago. The vaccine rollout plan was it would be everybody up to 60, hotspot communities and workers who can't work from home until July people 59 and below would have to wait until July was the plan two and a half weeks ago. And then like in very short amount of time, it turned into 30 plus next week, 18 plus the week after. Now there's obviously a difference between you can sign up for your appointment and when you'll actually get your vaccine. I'm sure the bulk of it will be into June, but yeah, maybe they were just doing expectation management because they weren't really totally solid on on Pfizer's delivery schedule yet. But I do think, and obviously the vaccine delivery schedule has improved modestly, but I think it's just, it's such a rapid change from, especially the news over the weekend. You do wonder why they were telling people they would have to wait so long, but I think people are excited. I think it's good. I do think lots of other provinces have, again, much better online systems to book, like even just 
you could pre-register in a number of yeah. uh, places rather than have to wait to get a slot. It's still not great, but I mean, it, the progress is obviously nice. I think Nova Scotia is using an Ontario company built uh, online booking system that they've had on for several months. So it's not like there wasn't even an, a made in Ontario solution here. There, there was. But to talk about the politics a little bit more about this, Chris, because I think it's fascinating, not just the tone of the provincial government's announcement, all this, but historically over the last several weeks and months, what their tone has been against the federal government trying to pass the buck on their decisions because of inadequate supply from the feds. The feds have been pretty clear. This is how much vaccine you're going to get of what, at what point. And they've actually exceeded all of those targets to this date. All of that was just posturing from the provincial government to try and say, we can't actually do all the things that we want to do. because, we, But we knew that. They knew what their supply was going to be. And they just made their own decisions as to who should be at the front of the line and who should get it. And I applaud the fact that they are diverting 50% of new vaccines to hotspots and that they're finally doing the province-wide portal and they're finally including people who can't work from home. But all these things they could have done months and months ago. None of this was predicated on the fact that the vaccine supply is what it is because that was also pretty clearly laid out months ago in terms of what we were going to get. Yeah. Do we feel like this is an equitable plan to like i agree certainly it is an improvement to divert more of the vaccines to the hot zones where the infections are where more people are makes sense but i was talking to some of my friends that work in some of the frontline essential jobs that aren't included on that first worker list and i think you can look at a plan like this and see a lot of people like me, professionals who live in a hot zone, I'm 18 plus, I can book my vaccine. And a grocery worker who lives in Toronto, but maybe just not one of the postal code hot zones, still not eligible to book for another sort of two weeks. So I've seen some interesting conversations about the equities of this plan and grocery workers still not being in that list of eligible workers, although it is good to see warehouse farm. But yeah, what do we think about sort of the equities in this in this, in this this plan? Is this the way that if you were trying to serve the highest need people, we would do I think to be short, no, this is this has not been an equitable rollout, right? And and not to belabor what we've talked about in the past, but I think people in Ontario can clearly see that our approach to vaccinations has been haphazard, that we we prioritized seniors first, and that makes complete sense. The people living in long-term care facilities, for example, where we saw the virus just sort of just completely, and we'll talk about this later, the effects of COVID-19 on long-term care homes. But when it comes to actually understanding where the the areas of contagion actually lie, uh, the government actually did not prioritize those places until now. And it's a little bit too late. And so if you don't have other things that protect people who are working at the front lines, like paid sick leave, along with an inequitable vaccine rollout, you're going to have people that are happy leading into the summer that they're getting vaccinated. But I do think that this is going to sting. And I'm not sure that people are going to just get over it really quickly. Because if we've said for a year that inequities are palpable. We have we've seen our government do the bare minimum to actually resolve those inequities. It was weird to me to see so many retail workers and like considering the focus this government has had on keeping retail open, opening business at any stretch, to see them left out of that first phase group. 
Uh, now, some of them have. Some of them, you know, have been. If you are in a hot zone and if you live and work in a hot zone, you're eligible just based on your age. But I don't think that is a systemic approach to looking at the economy and the equities of who works in these jobs and interesting stuff. I, I do have a story from this weekend. So it was a big weekend for me. I, I purchased the first car I've ever bought in my life. A super cool, gonna get me, get me lots of looks down the street as I drive it, Toyota Corolla. But we were talking a little bit before the pod, we started recording today about how car businesses, I, and I don't know if it's like a cultural like thing just in the industry like or something like that. Not great covid safety observances like it's an when you buy a car like they always want to get you in the dealership like into an office to start haggling and negotiating and upselling you on stuff like that and i was in the haggling part of it and because i felt unsafe like being brought into the manager's office to talk about my car more i kept on leaving i'd be like nope this is the price that i want and i I laid down a price and then they would be like okay we need to talk about that and i said okay go and talk about it and they would leave and then i would get up and leave the office and go outside and three times they like frantically came out and they their offer came down and down but i was like after we'd finished like i was you kept on leaving like and i actually think that the you could tell they were a little exasperated by it and i think potentially interpreted my fear of being in the building as walking from the purchase and i they knocked quite a bit of the original sticker price off the car i think not because i was super great at negotiating but just because i did not want to be inside for a second longer than i needed to be the benefits of haggling during covid (laughs) (laughs) yeah one of the only ones the big risk there being like i was in a car dealership this week which i didn't feel great about but i think that's a good example i'm not really sure why it that is it even deemed essential what why could that not be done over the phone or online and then you just pick it up outside right anyway precisely and and i kept on trying to suggest that we do our discussion outside like they had a picnic table set up and stuff like that that i thought would be good for that but but no it was yeah very strange i will say this dealership i would not have gone in this dealership did seem fair the the desks were distant it was like a big space there weren't that many people indoors so i i felt like it wasn't that bad but yeah i don't know why this place needs to be open and why designing the policy it would not be open and i would not have purchased a car this week but yeah let's talk about our poor public policy planning for people who have to work during covid because on wednesday last week the province made a ton of waves when it announced that it would introduce legislation that would require employers to provide up to three days of paid sick leave at 200 dollars per day on a time-loaded basis until september WSIB will be reimbursing employers, so no employer will be out money for this plan. The province will be paying it through that channel. Of course, in the lead up to the announcement, the province tried to make this the federal government's problem as much as possible and offered to increase funding to the Canada Sickness Recovery Benefit to boost the weekly amount to $1,000 for Ontarians who were diagnosed with COVID-19. The announcement was met with almost immediate criticism, with many noting that the Premier has now been working from home for more than three days as he self-isolates, that the three days are not nearly enough for COVID-19 symptoms to even appear uh, typically. Uh, and when Dr. Steiny Brown was asked if this move would help blunt the impact of the pandemic, his he issued a one word no answer. So I think the province would argue that this is not intended to be the backbone of paid sick leave, that it's intended to bridge you to the federal program and provide some time off for people who work to get tested, isolate, and then apply for CSRB. However, I think there's just so much to unpack. I think when I saw the announcement, it was like outburst of excitement and then a big sense of disappointment. So I don't know. How did you guys react to the the provincial the provincial paid sick day rollout? 
Yeah, there's two things I really want to talk about on this one. One, I think they capitulated and that was good and that they finally 400 plus days later said, okay, we need some sick days. And then a bunch of people gave them that credit that you're talking about, myself included, for saying, yes, this is a necessity and we do need to enhance the program and people should be staying home when they're sick at this, that and the other thing and all the arguments for it. Great. Good job. But then you really phoned it in and half-assed what the actual benefit was going to be. But my bigger concern and my second point is that I think they succeeded in this exercise because what they wanted to do was they wanted to take this off the table as an argument that they're not handling the pandemic well. And while I don't think the the number of sick days and the benefit and all of that, $200, it's not enough. But it's enough so far that people have accepted it as, oh, good, they did the thing that everybody said they needed to do. And I feel like we've lost momentum in terms of pushing them further to actually have a real system here for sick days that could actually you know, prevent more people from getting sick and actually have a real impact on COVID right now. And I'm worried about that. Yeah. yeah. So first credit where credit is due. I really didn't think they were going to do this. So I'm glad they've done it. I get bridging to the federal program in some respects. Like the the original sin was setting that up in the first place as a program that for those that are attached to an employer or a permanent employer, because unwinding it in the middle of the third wave when we're like two months away from maybe not needing it anymore. I, I don't think the fault is all with the province on that. I do think once you dug into the details a bit, so the federal program is worse. It's like it's designed worse than I even originally thought as I dug into it. So it's built off of a Monday to Sunday work week. And from what I understand, you have to have been off the majority of that week. And so if you take your three days from the province now, you're not going to get paid for the other two. Like you're ineligible to even get on the federal program until the following Monday, which like makes no sense whatsoever. And so hopefully the province is pushing the federal government till you can start counting your week from any day or whatever. The federal program obviously also being $500 is a problem and the province has you know offered to fix that. Anyway, this is the first time I'm feeling like the feds own quite a bit of the blame on on this at this moment like i think the province has actually made some moves and it would it's on the federal government to explain why they can't meet them halfway and i but i agree with alvin that politically they obviously never wanted to do this they needed to get this off their backs and i think this will have successfully done that to be honest but like from an actual let's contain the pandemic perspective does this actually do do that and to echo Steiny Brown, the answer is no, right? And so I think that this is where, regardless of how ineffective or effective the federal program is, the CRSB, if the province was only going to do something time limited, like this new program only takes you to September, then why not do it properly? Why not, why not actually do the thing that you need to do so that you can prevent people from going into work when they are sick? And so I, it's time limited anyways. I'm not sure that the impact on businesses and your ability to retain your staff is going to be that much harder or easier under under the new program versus just doing it properly in the first place. And so this feels less like, okay, we understand that there's a public health problem here that we need to respond to, but rather we've got a 
political problem where we're on the wrong side of where people are at on this issue. So we will do what it takes to help mitigate that perception problem. And that for me means that we're actually not going to resolve the issue of needing paid sick leave to contain the pandemic. And that plot line is being missed here for me. That's exactly what's happening. Grima, you're 100% right. This was a political decision, not an actual, how do we fix this and make sure that we keep numbers down and all of that. And that's why it's so disheartening. I think it's a really interesting case of just, I don't think I've ever been so frustrated with like federalism in my life as with this, because to your, your point about that original sin, Sam, of creating a program that was this bad the not only is i think that true in the design and i think true of many of the federal programs when they first started they were over designed they had too restrictive and they rolled back several of the restrictive eligibility criteria after the you know the pandemic really started gaining steam and that was true for a number of them but with this one in particular it created a, like a political situation where you have a bunch of conservative premiers and the federal government kind of owning stepping into a problem which may have had good intentions but did allow them the narrative for not for almost every province to say to have cover for not taking action on this and actually we've seen it we've seen it in bc we've seen it in ontario and you wonder what it might have been like if the federal government and this is not a good choice either so i don't like necessarily not blaming the federal government for not doing this but had said no employment is a clearly a matter of provincial destruction it is not up to the federal government to we will give you money to maybe pay your employers, but we are not going to direct fund people for sick days. And because, yeah, it created this narrative where Doug Ford has now been able to say, A, you sort of gaslight people with the federal program for the whole pandemic. And then B, now create like this like mealy mouth, like we're going to bridge you to it and have that be a real answer. And people are aware of that. And I think especially if you're a privileged person who doesn't necessarily use paid sick leave and you're just following the absence or presence of it, like loosely in the news, you could probably think that Doug Ford actually capitulated fully on this one so i yeah like hats off to like all the activists all the people who are still still raising this as an issue but i really think it points us to after the pandemic looking at federalism and looking at how we how we apportion responsibility for our social safety net between the two layers of government All right. Last topic I wanted to talk about today, uh, speaking of just things that have not gone well, I wanted to dive a little bit into the long-term care report. It's We're not going to be able to do the whole thing justice. It's about 350 pages of just harrowing, frustrating, not the kind of thing I would cram because it, you need to go through it in, in, in chunks. But it was, I think, a really interesting an important thing for people to read and anyone who is interested in public policy and who is interested in seeing how systemic problems can become really acute in certain situations would recommend giving it a read. It concludes that successful governments have failed the long-term sector for years, full stop. And that policy, the quote that really stood out for me is that policymakers and advocates, anyone who has cared to look has had access to the information and tools necessary to both understand the scope of the problem and to solve and move forward on some of the issues and to prepare for a pandemic. But for basically the past 20 years, there has not been the political will. I'll just highlight maybe a couple of the more egregious things that stood out to me in the report. Basically, the key drivers are not mysterious things. They are increasing demand in the system in terms of both volume and complexity of cases has been met with stagnant funding, which has led to stagnant staffing, high turnover, excessive workloads, which, you know, as soon as that pandemic hit, 
a lot of those people decided, no, I don't need this job anymore or left. So that capacity, it was already a stressful job that got more stressful and it was already bursting at the seams before the pandemic. So add a pandemic in there, things get worse. There's also widespread misalignment between the mission of the many of the owners of long-term care homes and the needs of the residents. The commission report highlighted that in some cases, for-profit homes are owned actually by like real estate investment trusts and other financial uh, companies who then hire other companies to run the care itself. But when you actually look at who is ultimately responsible for the care of residents, it is financial institutions who have a profit motive and that not being a good underlying that you're not going to get good care if that is the if that's the mission of the owners. And it laid a lot of blame on the province, both liberal and conservative governments, basically saying, despite warnings with H1N1 and Ebola in that we had in 2009 and 2014, Ontario did not have any kind of a pandemic preparedness plan. By 2017, we had a stockpile of PPE for a pandemic that had expired and was in the process of being destroyed. No ministries had undertaken any kind of drills of any kind for years. And the rules uh, that govern pandemic protocol in long-term care homes were, if your ministries aren't doing that, then the rules that you know are so on the ground hadn't really been looked at in a serious way for a, a long time. That was high level. I mean, I guess I'm wondering like, how much truth is there to the blame that governments give to previous governments and saying it's their fault for not doing the thing that they should have done and then telling me that I should do the thing that I didn't actually do. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly we have seen the response from this government be that, be like, this is the fault of the liberal government. We are going to hear, we're here to fix the problem. And I don't want to shy away from the fact that like these systemic problems flourished under the liberal government. Like we were put in not a great place because to be frankly, the, the liberal government did not pay enough attention to it. And that is true. It is also true, though, that the Ford government's handling of the pandemic itself, and there's a whole section specifically on this, made things much, much worse. And it was less about the direct management of the long-term care sector and more things that affected the whole of the pandemic that we know to be true. But there were some really damning things about this government in the report. So we know that this government started meeting about COVID in January 2020 and talked about hospitals and long-term care together. However, in subsequent meetings, the commission found that hospitals really took center stage in discussion and planning and long-term care homes fell off in terms of a priority, in terms of like where they were on the agenda, in terms of the meetings that the long-term care minister and ministry officials were invited to, they clearly fell off. Most damningly, at a February 27th meeting chaired by the chief medical officer of health, and this just blew my mind, Public Health Ontario, the Hospital Association, Ministry, ministry of Health, they all agreed at this meeting altogether that COVID-19 and widespread COVID-19 transmission in Ontario was inevitable. However, after that, for two additional weeks, the government continued to communicate low risk, a high connection to travel, despite that not being the case anymore. The government's officials did not believe that these were low risk activities. And apparently, Minister Fullerton was asked to release a video dating that the risk remained low and encouraging people to travel and get out there. And she refused because of what her ministry officials were, were saying to her. The other thing that totally blew me and actually totally made me more in the Dave Williams needs to go camp, evidence of asymptomatic spread was confirmed by Chinese and Australian health officials 
quite early in the pandemic. But he told the commission he did not believe there was sufficient evidence for it until the summer, which of course we know that asymptomatic transmission was key to the degree of spread in long-term care homes. You're advised not to go to work only if you had symptoms. So that was like a big reason why there was spread. So I guess at the end of the day, it's the classic story of a crisis hitting a system without a real plan and the existing staffing shortages being exacerbated by the Ford government's general pandemic mismanagement. And I there are a billion things that I don't have time to go into without going on and on, but there were way late, like in March and April, they were working out jurisdictional issues between the chief medical officer of health and local health authorities and releasing all of their things to long-term care homes as guidance, not directives, because they didn't feel like they had the proper authorities. And they were having discussions about these way later. Now that I've gone on and gone through about that, any thoughts on, on, on this and how the reports come out and how it's landed? I have a lot of thoughts. I'll try to be brief, though. I think, yes, yes, blame should be shared across partisan lines on the general lack of investment in long-term care compared to other parts of our health system. I would say, and we've touched on this on past episodes, our general kind of social infrastructure looks pretty spotty up close in tons of sectors, right? Like shelters, sexual violence support, disability support, social assistance. And you, I would like just, you know, lump long-term care in with that, where if you're not core education and health, you're fighting for scraps always at the table uh, provincially. And you see these flare-ups, right, with like autism support. And then the government tries to fix autism by pouring money into it. Well, what about all the other disability services, which continue to be way under-resourced, by the way? And so will this result in more sustainable long-term funding for long-term care staffing, maybe meet the four hours of care standard that's been recommended. I hope so. And crises often result in sustainable change. And, but yeah, the lack of a system, the lack of you know, proper accountability, the role of the private sector, all these things are true of tons of our social infrastructure. And maybe, I, I, anyway, I guess I just don't see that as a huge part of the conversation because this, this ended up in death as opposed to neglect and harm of other forms, it will maybe get more attention. Having said all of that, the pandemic specific parts of this, allowing the stockpile of PPE to expire, et cetera, those things feel unforgivable. And if the liberals were responsible for that, they should totally share the blame. But I think a lot of the rest of it feels much more systemic. I I don't know if that was, if I made sense there, but. No, you did. But I mean, at the same time, it's not like the federal liberals weren't in power for four years before the pandemic or the provincial conservatives in power for two years as well. Certainly they would have had briefings and things saying, hey, by the way, this is a thing and we should, in theory, prepare for this. And I don't know, they, they still had that opportunity to step up. It's not like they got elected on day one and the pandemic started. And I think the more unforgivable thing is knowing what it was going to look like having that information from China already and still trying to mislead the public was the worst part about that. And then, yeah, this commission was about the broader, how do they handle the, uh, the situation in long-term care homes? How did they handle it halfway through the pandemic? How did they handle it after they already went through the first wave and still screwed up for the second wave and more people died, even though they knew what they were supposed to do the first time? Like they owe a ton of responsibility for this. And they don't want to take any of it because we still have a minister right now who will take one or two tough questions and then walk out of the room 
which she did this morning in response to tough questions about this report, right? This is a government that takes zero responsibility for things. We talked about that last week, but she continues and Ford continues to say, this isn't my fault. And I take no responsibility for what happened under my watch. And that's just not a way to govern. Yeah, that message, that message is, is infuriating in the sense that the many of the things, the consensus of the report seems to be that many of the Ford government's direct fault, and it does talk a little bit about the move from wave one to wave two, and they did a couple things. They tried to hire more inspectors. They did a couple things, but the report points out that the training time for a long-term care inspector was longer than the time between wave one and wave two. So they really lay... What surprised me was not specific in the weed stuff that the Ford government got wrong about the direct management of the sector itself, but really about broader, to your, to Sam's point, systemic things that what we saw in BC is like clear accountabilities, moving th- moving through things quickly works. Yeah, gaslighting the public, not taking COVID super seriously does not. One last thing I wanted to talk a little about before we leave this is the commission had a couple records recommendations. So obviously better pandemic preparedness, PPE stockpiling, not letting that slip ever again was like the top, increasing funding for long-term care specifically to support better staffing, better working conditions, increased ties between long-term care and the rest of the healthcare sector. But I think the most the, what surprised me is the commission did not recommend banning for-profit homes, which I thought was an in, I wanted to run by this group as a thing. It did say that developers who those who are involved in building the homes should not be responsible for the care. And so I, it seemed like they were trying to strike a middle ground that we need private sector capital to build the space that we know we will need in the sector in the short term to meet capacity. However, it recommends basically a model where the province then pays, buys out to you, basically buys out the facility or buys out to use it so that the province, as opposed to a financial institution, is the owner eventually. And so, I don't know, that was an interesting place. I think there are a lot of people who are watching this hoping for it to be for-profit homes should no longer exist. I think they found a way to say that, but I'm curious for where you think this, how you read where the commission landed on the for-profit angle of this. I don't know that I know enough about the sector to comment intelligently. I do know childcare, having used to have been the chief of staff at the Ministry of Education, which similarly has a 20% sort of share of for-profit providers in the in Ontario's childcare system. And I think we dealt with similar issues, which is this capacity exists to undo it and take it away would be to disrupt care, but we don't want to prioritize our funding going to the dividends of private companies and we did various things like capping the sector share of that go that is for profit as we invested in the sector and various rules around how our funding could be used but in at the end of the day didn't work to you know actively undo the for profit providers that are in the system i imagine the conversations in long term care are similar which is like and where the share i think is larger than the 20% in childcare much larger i think which is to invest your public resources in uploading that capacity when we have so many other fires burning that actually affect care more directly is just not the priority. I Anyway, I think I understand why they came to that conclusion. It, do I think that for-profit companies should be involved in childcare or uh, long-term care in an ideal world? Probably not. I'm not, but 
I can understand why they came to the conclusion they did. I think the comparison with childcare is on point because it's so much of the system that in order to improve it, you can't get rid of it. And we should be thinking of ways of incentivizing and improving the existing system and building on top of what is already there. So how do we change regulations so that we don't have ward rooms anymore and we don't let those get grandfathered in from 50 years ago? Let's create a fund or whatever it is to get people out of those ward rooms in for-profit homes? How do we support municipalities and other broader public sector organizations in creating their own long-term care facilities? We need to grow the, the system as a whole, and there needs to be more investment in it so that people see stable jobs there. They It's reliable. They can they don't need to you know, work for five different hots at long-term care facilities because they're getting paid so little, right? Like the whole system needs that type of investment and concentration of political will and and dialogue in order for all of this to happen. And yeah, we can blame and should blame the private sector for letting people down. And when you have Mike Harris as one of the chief lobbyists for these things, you got to look at that pretty carefully and say, what are they actually trying to do here? And what are the motivations of these organizations, these companies who are actually really just looking for profit and land and whatever it is and operate like a landlord more so than a healthcare provider and then work through that system that we have to get whatever we need because yeah. it's not there right now. Yeah, I think broadly, like the, the comments from the report on the role of REITs, so these big real estate um, holdings and company holdings and their role in the long-term care sector is really important to, to think about systemically alongside the financialization of housing across the sector, across the housing sector. So long-term care is both its housing, it's supposed to provide safe and secure housing for our elderly, along with the supportive care that they need so that they can have the access to the health care and other needs that they may need. But that is long-term care. And so when we discuss the role of REITs, I don't think that we should divorce it from the role that the REITs have been playing in the affordability of housing writ large in the province and in the country, because these REITs have been buying out derelict properties time and time again, and they're doing so now. And over time, push up rents in these spaces, which make it uh, unaffordable for, for people to live in cities or in small towns. And alongside that, there's also so as as people become harder or find difficulties in finding a place to live. There's also parallels in the supportive housing sector that we haven't talked about on the pod much for younger people that may not need long term care, but are younger, but need supportive housing resources, like mental health supports, for example, there is a whole model that's being developed or that has been developed around that. And what we need there is for the province to kick in operating funds for those services to, to take place and to take place. And so I, I just I think that whether there's not for profit or for profit companies in the long term care 
sector shouldn't be divorced from the the broader role that REITs are playing in destabilizing housing markets. And long-term care should not be seen only as a a healthcare issue, but a broader issue. And if we start to do that, then you can start to see where where the operational sides, that's where the province really does need to come in strong. But there is also a role that the province and the federal government needs to be undertaking, or needs to to critically assess what their role is going to be against the financialization of housing. These are all very complicated things, and I don't expect the Long-Term Care Commission's report to have dealt with it. But if we want a comprehensive response to this, we have to think systemically across the different sectors that have been undervalued and underfunded for years. Yeah, absolutely. All right, moving us. I have more I want to say on that, but I know we're at 12.59. It's don't have a hard stop. Can we do rapid fire? Do we have time for rapid fire? All right, cool. Oh, before we close today, two post-secondary related items in the rapid fire. We'll see how rapid fire these are because I'm uh, pretty, I, these got me pretty rapidly fired up <laughs> when I read them. <laughs> I leave that, we, we need to leave that deafening silence in, in the edit. Doug Ford asks, the federal government to temporarily restrict international students from entering Ontario. The federal government tepidly responded, indicating, I think, that they would be willing to open a talk to something limited or something, but I think wanted to throw a little bit of cold water on this. But yeah, what did we think of this? Just total cluster back up an announcement. It's a terrible idea. It's idiotic. It's just tone deaf and nativist and this um, is all coming from foreigners, like when it's all community transmission internally and let alone completely blind to the fact that post-secondary institutions in Ontario have survived despite the cuts from the Ford government because of international students. Are they trying to create more Laurentians? It looks intentional. Like they're trying to, let's see how many universities and colleges we can make go bankrupt. And But like even him saying it is already incredible damaging because it'll get spread on social media and people will read it and be like, oh, Ontario is not really welcoming international students right now. That is already very hurtful. But yeah. it even just feels early. Like there, I think there's a high probability the campuses are going to be open in September, given the vaccine rollout so far. Like it, it just it it felt completely political to take another jab at the feds, irrespective of its impact. Yeah, yeah. In ways that, to your point, like Canada needs to grow through immigration and international student and the international student inflow is very beneficial for that public goal that is so important to our economic health even if you don't care about just the like people behind this which is what we should be caring about how you how that feels like you're gonna be you look at canada and you're seeing this dude be like hey it's all these international students like that has yeah that, that would feel bad i would look twice at ontario if i were search I, w- I would look twice at the place where the leaders political leadership was saying that related uh, the government decided it was going to extend its tuition freeze for another year at ontario universities and colleges weirdly they amended it and that out of province students can pay can be charged a three percent extra sort of premiums universities with large out of province populations i guess will benefit a little bit from that but but yeah but like this is the first time ontario's had an out of province fee like a separate i think so tuition like we've never had that and i know that it exists in quebec and has existed in quebec for a long time and i think there are a number of atlantic canada uh canadian provinces that do the same quebec yeah so this uh, is that's not true. Newfoundland, I think Newfoundland might be the other one. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes, I almost think of this as just one big rapid fire, maybe not that rapid fire item, because these two items are so related. Like 
we'll, we're going to we're willing to charge people that aren't here, not our own, not people not who aren't from here out. Yeah. There's just like a way of looking at it that is like people who aren't from here, like in a very weird way of looking at the world, like that is consistent across these policies. Also, they're related in the fact that, yeah, this means that chasing international students is the only way universities and colleges can uh, get new revenue now, which is not the way we should be looking at international student, international students as in any kind of way, shape or form. But we've created a condition where every university is trying to get in this game because the provincial funding is frozen and the tuition funding is frozen. So it's the only way an institution can get money to pay inflationary costs. Cool. All right. That's that's maybe a medium fire for today. That's all the time we have for today. Ontario Loud is hosted by Chris Martin, Grima Tawa Kapoor, Sam Andry, and myself, Alvin Tejo. Thanks to our support crew, Harman Mundi and Fahim Khan. And of course, thank you to our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support our show, please visit patreon.com slash Ontario Loud. Follow us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or email us at Ontario Loud Mail at gmail.com. You can find past episodes at our website at OntarioLoud.ca. See you next time. Stay safe.